CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Well, you've all survived yet another week in your own lives. And with us at Political Rewind, it's Friday, uh, a day to start uh, winding down, except there is so much to talk about uh, in political news today that we're not going to quite let up yet, are we, Jim Galloway? No, that's good. That we're, we're, you'll, you'll have to wait till Saturday morning. That. Okay. <laughs> that's Jim Galloway. He, of course, is the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me on the show on Mondays and Fridays. His column appears in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Com. Uh, sitting next to him, uh, really glad to have back in the studio, Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul, a longtime uh, leader in Republican Party politics in the state of Georgia and nationally, for that matter, former chairman of the state Republican Party, uh, was an invaluable assistant to uh, Jack Kemp when Jack Kemp ran uh, housing and urban development. I don't know how invaluable Jack thought I was, but I thought I was. Very <laughs> well, he thought you were. No, I remember the way. No, I remember Jack. Uh, Jack's attitude about you, Rusty Paul. By the way. A big shout-out to you. I was reading the Sandy Springs patch yesterday, and I saw a story that said that Sandy Springs has been named one of the safest cities in the United States to raise children. Yeah. yeah? Congratulations well, thank on you. that. We, uh, we work real hard on, uh, on, on doing things like that, and it's great to be recognized. Yeah. Uh, we just said before the show that one of the things that's especially good about your life now is that you get to involve yourself in running a city. You don't have to worry as much as you used to about the... <laughs> The atmosphere of politics around you nationally and, oh, today. Oh, what a relief it is. <laughs> if you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do at uh, the GPB News uh, page on Facebook, across the table, State Senator Sally Harrell, Democrat from the city, you're mostly city of Atlanta, I think is... Uh, no, I no? only have one backyard in the city oh, of Atlanta. Oh, I thought you had mostly Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm mostly in North DeKalb County, so oh. I have 10 cities in my district. I've never been... Been, I never can keep people's district lines in mind. Yeah. So your 10 cities are like... Well, I have a one backyard right. in the city of Atlanta, <laughs> okay. which puts me on the Atlanta delegation right. in Fulton County. Right. Uh, I have Brookhaven, most of Brookhaven, Doraville, Shambly, a sliver of Tucker, all of Dunwoody, most of Peachtree Corners, a little bit of Sandy Springs, <laughs> and a few fish in Roswell. A few fish. Yeah, the river. Charles Cook is here. He is one of the leading immigration attorneys in the Southeast and certainly is one of the experts on immigration uh, in the United States. You know, we always love having you on, Chuck. Thanks for being back. It's always great to be here. So uh, we do have a lot in the uh, area of immigration to talk about. And I think, uh, uh, Sally, we really need to start with you. Okay. You uh, yesterday yes. went down to Stewart, Georgia, uh, mm-hmm. to, to Stewart, which is what, Lumpkin? It's the city of Lumpkin, city Stewart of Lumpkin. County. Yeah, uh, to visit the detention center there, which houses somewhat something like 2,000 undocumented immigrants, yes? Yes, almost. All right, so as we get started in talking about immigration, just give us your... Uh, insights about what you saw yesterday. Well, a constituent asked me to make this trip, um, but I was already familiar with a nonprofit in the area called El Refugio uh, that runs a hospitality house for families of immigrants who want to visit someone at Stewart Detention Center. Um, some of you might have heard uh, about a year ago, Samantha B got involved in this and bought them a nice old 1836 house that they've renovated. So they uh, provide an important service there. But one thing they do is they take people like me and Representative Shelley Hutchinson also went and they take volunteers um, and they train them to visit uh, people who are in detention at Stewart um, Detention Center. And so after an orientation, I did go over to the uh, detention center and one detainee was selected uh, for me to visit with him. And it just... It really pulls at your heartstrings um, because we talk about this, but it's always about them, and it's never it's personal. It's abstract. It's abstract. Um, but sitting 
you had to talk through glass because it's basically run out of, well, it is run out of a private prison, which there are issues with. Um, but the gentleman I talked with was a young man. Uh, he had been, I can't, there's things I can't say because I can't identify him, but he had been through more than a dozen countries to get here. He told me all these details about open boats on the high seas, uh, days stomping through jungles, um, corrupt countries, unsafe countries. He put a lot of effort to get here. How long had he been in detention? He had been in five months. And uh, he had one interesting little tidbit is that whole trip, which took him from October till January, he carried his Bible the entire way. He never let go of his Bible. And his belief was what was giving him the strength to get through what he needed to get through at, at Stewart Detention. I had things to learn from this man. Um, but he, when I first started talking to him, uh, I told him that I had put $20 on his commissary card. And he just grinned. And so I wondered, you know, why was he so happy about this money? Was he going to buy himself some snacks? Was he going to call family? No, he was going to try to find a lawyer. And that's one of the things that's so difficult is these people, these are civil cases. They do not have access to lawyers, and Lumpkin is in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it's difficult to find lawyers who can help these, these people. He had lost his asylum trial. If he is sent back, he, he, he'll be dead. He'll be killed in his country. Chuck, uh, I know you've been to the facility any number of times. Back in, it's already been 2015, I think, that Vice News did a report. They called it the black hole of mm -hmm. detention centers. Why would they have called it that? And, and is it still what the way they described it back then, which was, you know, abhorrent conditions? Well, I think it's worse than it, than it ever has been. In it's what sense? Well, first of all, it's holding more people than it's ever held before. Um, and uh, it's still just as remote to get to, just as difficult to get to. Even places like El Refugio, which help families, people to visit them, uh, most people don't have access to a lawyer because there aren't any lawyers there. Um, Sonny and I were talking before, I said, well, your guy found a lawyer. I'm, I happen to be one. I happen to know how to do these cases. Uh, we'll talk to him later in the week. But what's happening in Stewart is the intention, the intentional... Um, separation of people from their ability to get representation and to win their cases. Stewart Detention Center has a 99% denial rate for asylum cases. Uh, and it's not because 99% of the cases are bad. Presenting an asylum case takes skill, takes ability, and it requires you to speak English and write English and prepare your case in a way that a judge can understand it uh, and it can be presented effectively with the law on your side. And I will tell you that is essentially impossible to do by yourself. It's essentially impossible. Um, and uh, uh, that's why folks like me are just actively trying to get centers like this closed because it does no good, one, for the system. Two, it, it sends people to certain death when they are denied. Uh, and just because you're denied doesn't mean you're not afraid to go home or you won't die. I've had several clients who've been murdered after they've been denied right. asylum in the United States. Before I learn, I want to open this up to everybody. Before I do, a couple of quick uh, questions. Number one, we hear conflicting stories, reports about what conditions are like in, in detention centers at the border. Uh, no access to clean water, to uh, being able to take a shower or whatever. Food is... Uh, 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 bad, not very good. I mean, what do we know? What did you learn in talking to people yesterday about conditions? Is it clean? Do they have access to food? Are they being able to get showers and cl clean water, all of that? Is well, it air conditioned? Yeah, that's really <laughs> I, the key. I did not see yeah. the inside. You were just at, if, I, at, at, at a visiting room, essentially. I was in a visiting room. So I, I left feeling like I want to see more. Yeah. So all I could do was ask questions. And, and a couple things broke my heart. One is there were families there with small children who were there to see their fathers. Uh, Stewart Detention Center was built, I think they lease what used to be a medium security uh, mm -hmm. prison. And so it is a prison. Yeah, when you see photographs yeah. of the outside with the razor yeah. wire and high fences, there's yeah. no question so these what you're children, looking at. So these children, when they come to see their fathers, see them as criminals, and they're not. And so one of the things in the visitor center was you have to speak, you know, through thick glass. 
um, on a telephone. So these children who were there to see their fathers, they couldn't touch their dad. They could see him, but they couldn't touch him. And that is tragic. Um, I did ask about food. Um, and this gentleman who had been through who knows what horrors on his way to America, I figured he would at least be glad to have regular food. But he said it was the only time he frowned the whole time I saw him. I asked him about his food. He, got, he frowned. He said, it's taken some getting used to. Mm. And he said at first when his food was presented to him, he just felt ill and couldn't eat it. Chuck, what do you know about the conditions inside? Oh, they're intentionally made to be difficult. There is food. Uh, it's food that's prepared as cheaply as possible because the the contractors are receiving a set dollar per day for the inmates, so they make more profit by reducing the cost of the things they're supplying, including the food. So the food is the same every single day. It's the cheapest type of food. It might be rice and beans. There's limited amounts of protein. The horrible thing, and there is air conditioning, in case you're curious, there is air conditioning when it's working. There are frequent isolation events. Um, we have had the entire prison shut down for chickenpox, for example, about a month or so ago. Um, but what they don't have enough of is medical care, both for mental health, I and mean, once you've been there for five months, you begin to have mental health issues, uh, as well as physical health, which is why people have committed suicide uh, at that place and have died of, of treatable medical conditions. Because most times when you have a problem and you finally get to see the nurse on duty, they will just give you aspirin and say, you'll be fine. Well, I think, in fact, we've had four deaths at Stewart in the last period of several years. You're right. right? I think it's been about four years, about a death a year. Rusty, um, we know that some months ago now, the Trump administration um, suggested that maybe they were looking at Fort Stewart as a new facility for holding migrants because things are so crowded at the border. I, I'm curious what your take, as a mayor of a, of a, a big city in, in Georgia, what's your take on having a facility like this in our state? I mean, how does it make you feel? Well, first of all, as a mayor, uh, you know, we don't get a lot involved in, in, yeah. in immigration issues. I mean, right, it's just I not on it. my plate day to day. The biggest immigration issue I have is trying to keep people from Cobb County to coming over the river. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and sorry, driving, through, can, driving we, through our city. So, we, just, we just can't resist. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Good, good Cobb County next to me. Uh, but first of all, let me say this. You, you, you indicated... You know, my, my political pedigree is Jack Kemp, and Jack taught me that people don't come to this country for welfare. They come here for the very same reasons that my grandfather, probably six times removed, John Huey, left Northern Ireland in 1695 and came to this country. Mm -hmm. The same, the Irish and the Jews and the Italians, they all come here because there's, there's opportunity. Uh, it disappoints me that we have a facility that people are not being well treated while they're here, but but... There is this issue of immigration that both parties have failed to deal with. The, uh, the Democrats have weaponized it. The Republicans are afraid to deal with legal, represent, uh, legal immigration issues because they're afraid of the political consequences. And so what's happened is nobody's dealing with this problem to fix. People would come in legally if they could. But there's no way they can come in legally. So what we've got is a dereliction of duty by our leaders in Congress on both on parties both sides of the aisle. to deal mm -hmm. with this issue. We need people. We need people to work in the, on the farms. We need bright people working in technology companies. And they can't get here because Congress has not stepped up and dealt with it and created an or orderly way for people to come to this country. That's the real crisis and problem. And and challenge that we face. Jim? Yeah, yeah you know, I, uh, I put up a post uh, uh, on some, uh, this this week on some figures that uh, Charlie Hazlett, uh, who, who does the, the Trouble in God's Country blog uh, that that he had created. And there, there, are, there are 79 of Georgia's 159 counties are, in, in, in half of those counties, deaths are, are outpacing births. Mm -hmm. We've got we've got a tremendous pop, uh, depopulation problem in rural Georgia, and and it's it's presenting a real problem for for agriculture mm -hmm. in there. In fact, uh, two weeks ago you had you had David Perdue uh, in 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 front of the Georgia Chamber, and 
and he broke a little bit with with, uh, with the Trump administration. Uh, uh, he, he said, yes, we need to make sure that these these farmers get the workers that they need. Chuck, you, you have an updated, uh, you have some updated news on that. Before you talk to us about j- just that, uh, you know, how rural Georgia farm mm-hmm. farms are going to be able to get labor. Let me, Tom Faust is monitoring the news as he does uh, every day while we're on the air. And he just sent this bulletin. The Los Angeles Times is now reporting... This just crossed the wires that ICE shut down a toll-free hotline for detained immigrants to connect with a lawyer after the hotline was featured on the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. The Times reports that the hotline had been operating for several years by the Freedom for Immigrants organization. It was shut down two weeks or less than two weeks after the show mentioned it, and uh, essentially it's cutting off the opportunity for uh, people to use that line to connect with folks like you. Well, here's the thing. Again, it's intentional. It's designed to get people to give up, to reduce access, to win their cases. The entire current administration, and and as you know, I'm not a big fan, uh, wants to limit legal immigration. Senator Perdue introduced a bill to cut legal immigration in half. And just today, crossing other wires, uh, a report was had that says the administration is pressuring Guatemala to sign a safe third country agreement, which basically means if you're from not from Guatemala, if you're from South and you get to Guatemala, you have to apply for asylum in Guatemala as a, quote, safe third country. Gives you new definition of the word safe. But if they, and if they won't agree to this, they will not allow Guatemalans to use the H-2A agricultural worker visa in the United States, thus depriving our farmers of the labor Sally, they you, need. you've been involved with down there in South Georgia, so you understand how farms need I, workers. I, do. I travel down to South Georgia every summer with my church youth group alongside the Emory Physician Assistance Program that do health fairs for farm workers. And we collect clothes, and once the uh, farm workers see the doctor, then they get to come by our tent and, and get some jeans and a T-shirt and maybe a hat and um, socks and shoes. And um, those farms down there in South Georgia are full of H-2A workers. Um, So if we further limit um, those workers, then our cucumbers and our blueberries and our peaches, they're going to just rot in the ground. In fact, I was in Athens last weekend. And with at a freshman legislator training, and one of the freshman legislators shared with me that the farms in his area, um, that Americans, they don't want those jobs. It is hard, hard work. Believe me, I've been at the farms. I have too. If you've ever been like down in Cordial on a 98 degree day out in the fields, it's hot, it's dusty. It's about as miserable as you get. And me, I was just a reporter wearing a suit talking. I I grew up on the farm. Yeah, that's right. I grew up on the farm. I picked tomatoes, cucumbers. My school (laughs) let out from uh, in in October so we could go pick cotton. So I know how tough it is. Uh, no, no, eggplants worse. Oh, okay. They got a little thorn on them. But anyway, that's why but they made sure you went to college. Uh, it was. It was a great motivator. Yeah. And I worked side by side with uh, the migrant workers that came through our part of North Alabama, which was big tomato country. It is hard and dirty work. I never understood child labor laws because I worked much harder until I was 16. <laughs> and then I got could go to work in the packing plant. Yeah. Uh, so it is. It's grueling so, work. Jim, let's uh, turn to the uh, latest developments by the Trump administration in terms of uh, immigration. Um, one of them is a, uh, a a new regulation that overturns what's known as the Flores Agreement. Uh, the, the Flores Agreement essentially said that migrants who are detained have to be released within a, what, 29 days? Children. 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 Children had to be released within 29 days. 20. Oh, is it yeah, 20, 20 days? 20. Yeah, just barely, um, and, almost three weeks. Okay, thank you for the correction. And one of the things that, that's concerned, that concerns the immigration hardliners on this sort of thing is uh, that it's, they, they call this catch and release. You're going to hold people uh, and then turn them loose after 20 days. You don't know where they're going to be, uh, that sort of thing. The Trump administration has now said we're no longer going to abide by the Flores Agreement. Uh, now we're going to hold families intact uh, for, they don't like the word indefinite, but there's no 
without time uh, assigned to no, this. Until their until until their cases are adjudicated, and that could take years and years. So 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 basically, you are you, you their plan is to establish a a a, a network of internment camps. Chuck, I, I don't think you could call it anything else. Did I have the basic details of this well, correct? Actually, the administration has sold this to be the basic deals you have given, and yes. that's wrong. Okay, that's be wrong. So the Flores settlement, which is named after a young woman who was molested in custody back in the 90s, um, said this. If the government is allowed to make regulations in light of this settlement, this proposed regulation doesn't replace the settlement. The settlement remains in place, but they are allowed to make uh, regulations that are consistent with the terms of the settlement. Now, the key term of the settlement is that presumption of release is favored. So that you will presume to release a child or a child that in custody of a parent uh, after 20 days. This particular regulation says the child will never be released. So one, it is violative of the settlement. Um, two, the next and the next probably more important part of this, they aren't keeping families intact. There is no detention center in America today anywhere in which fathers and mothers and children. So are they held. say families will be kept it's together. It's a mom You're and a child, or a dad and a child, okay. but they oh, do okay. not okay. have so the whole family. Okay. And do they do do they separate them according to the to sex? I mean, well, generally, male, if, a, if, a, if it's a, a single fa- dad, a they'll keep it. They'll have a single dad and a kid facility. If it's a mom and a dad, they'll move the dad off and keep the mom with the child. We had a lot of single dads like this in Stewart as a, as a result of this. Uh, so be clear what this really is. I mean, you called it an internment camp. You can call it what you will, but it's intended, and their clear intent is to send the message: you will spend, you will be in jail in the United States. Well, Rusty, I mean, that isn't even a hidden message. The administration has said, we see this as a deterrent to people trying to get into the country illegally. And, and, and the sad thing is it's fixable. All it takes is leadership in Congress. And you've got nobody who's willing to step up. I mean, the last time they, they tried, you had the, what was it, the Gang of Five, Gang of Seven? With, uh, gang of Eight? Yeah, whatever yeah, it was, with uh, you know, Lindsey Graham and... Saxby Shambles? It's all of them. And so what happens is, is they got pilloried, but somebody's got to step up and try and solve this problem. Uh, but what? But no, there was a, there was a, another version of that. I think what two years ago, just, two, just a yeah, year and a half ago, uh, an offer and was it, on the table for yeah, Donald. Oh yes, yeah. 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 that's right. Yeah. So and, with, with, we've nibbled around it, but never really gotten a serious. The last time it was dealt with was when Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, they they did some immigration reform, didn't solve the problem, made some made some progress. But and if if we continue to weaponize this issue politically. You're never going to solve it. Sally, agree. Jim Galloway is quite right to say that there was an effort since the Gang of Eight, which was back a number of years ago, George W. Bush, who was president in those days. And 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 if we look back on that, we, we recall that we can see the, the meetings in the White House with uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, with Chuck Schumer talking with the president, saying we've, we've, we've reached some agreement. Uh, and it all fell apart. Uh, and we have to say that everything isn't a matter of what the the Trump White House is doing wrong. Democrats are so adamant in refusing uh, any almost any of the protections that President Trump wants that they have very little. They have almost as little flexibility, I think, as the Republicans do on this. Well, Cook's going to argue uh, yeah. about that, but well, it's a political problem. I mean, as the, the Republican primary is incredibly important, more so than Democrats. And so because you have to get past the Republican primary to contest in the general, a lot of promises are made and they're pushed further and further to the right. And so when those promises are made, then you start governing and you start realizing that compromises need to be made and there really is human suffering and these things really do need to happen. But you've made a promise to your people that you need to keep, you think you need to keep, or you might not win re-election. And so that's the trap we're in, and that's the trap we're facing when we go back into session when the Georgia yeah, legislature Well, it's not just in. on the Republican side. You've got the same challenge on the Democratic side. Although I mean, we don't a, have as many primaries. No, but, you, but <laughs> nonetheless, it's been, it's been weaponized largely uh, on the left against uh, uh, the right, 
And that makes it tougher for anybody to solve the problem. We've got to de-escalate the conversation and get focused on dealing with the issue, not trying to use it as a sledgehammer to beat up our political opponents. Chuck, I, I don't think you can call it weaponizing when it's about human rights and human dignity. Well, it's been turned into a political weapon that makes it impossible for either side to be able to deal legitimately with the problem. We've got to get some serious leaders who are willing to put all this stuff aside and face and come up with realistic solutions to this problem. Chuck, the real sticking point, as I recall, there were two. One was DACA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they, the Democrats thought they came out of the meeting with Trump with an agreement that the president would extend DACA, right? Am uh, I, well, they did come out of agreement with that. It well, that's what I'm saying. Agreement, yeah. But the other was any funding for the wall at all, which Democrats have held a line on pretty, pretty adamantly ever since well, the Trump. The deal was DACA for the wall. Complete funding for $25 billion on the table. It's yours. And Trump walked away from that. Democrats didn't walk away from that. Trump no, walked no, away no, they're, from they're, that they, because because he, they, they would not cut legal immigration right, in half. Uh, because the 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 David Perdue Tim Cook legislation worked Tim its Cotton. way. Into, Tim, Tim Cotton. Cotton. Yes, thank you. Tom Cotton. Yeah, Tom Cotton. Yeah. My brain was in Greenland. Yeah, that's I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that deal was on the table, so that's gone. But I want to go back to your other point, though. Asylum is a law created by Congress. Uh, our asylum laws are found in the Immigration Nationality Act. The first section of that law, 201, uh, 208.1, says the following. Any alien, which anybody foreign national, either in the United States or at a port of entry may apply for asylum. So let's, before you even continue Period. with that, Jim, he's saying something important. People who seek asylum are not here, essentially, illegally. They haven't broken the law because Congress gave that, them the right to apply for asylum. Right. Just and, want to make and, sure and we there, say are, that clearly. And there are a few main gates that that we would like them to come to, right. but those gl- gates in many instances have been blocked, and so you have the situation where, where you've got people trying to swim the Rio Grande. Well, and that's exactly what's happening today. So the Trump administration decided they were going to create something called metering. That is, each of the massive port of entries we have in near El Paso and, and, and down south of Tucson, Nogales, or Tijuana, we're only going to allow in 50 people a day to apply for asylum uh, because we're too overwhelmed in the United States. Uh, and as a result, you have these lines of literally thousands of people in Mexico with a number written on their hand or their arm of where they are in line. And... Because Mexico is so extraordinarily dangerous at the border, not the rest of Mexico, but the border, they literally go down the road 20 miles and hop the fence and sit down and just literally wait for the border patrol. So this problem of asylum seekers, which, by the way, is not anywhere close to the massive volume that George Bush and Bill Clinton saw in the 90s and 2000s, uh, is a creation of the administration. I've got to get to a break because we're late. But I do want to, one quick thing, Rusty, uh, turn to you on this, and then we'll continue this conversation on the other side of the break. I've said a couple times this week there are a couple of issues that could make, uh, that could be Nixon in China moments for President Trump. One is gun control simple gun control, universal background checks, a a guy who styles himself as a conservative Republican who says, yes, I will work in a bipartisan way. That's Immigration is another. The president could be Nixon in China, the guy, the conservative who reaches out to the other party. It's it's a ripe moment for the kind of compromise you're talking about. If since you've since you've mixed two issues, gun control and immigration, (laughs) I'll I'll just say we've got to get everybody to put their political weapons down. (laughs) All right, perfect. And deal with it. Good way to end uh, the first segment of our show today. We're going to talk more about immigration after these messages. Join us for GPB's gala event in the Fox Theater's Egyptian Ballroom on Saturday night, September 7th. The evening starts with a meet-and-greet cocktail reception with music legend Brenda Lee, followed by a three-course dinner and dancing with live music. We'll celebrate Brenda Lee's accomplishments in the world of entertainment as she's presented with the first GPB Georgia Legend Award. Go to gpb.org slash Brenda Lee to get your tickets before time runs out. Veep star Julia Louis-Dreyfus has been making people laugh for a long time. She's up for her ninth acting Emmy. We asked her about her first laugh. I remember making my mom laugh when I stuck some raisins up my nose when I was three. (laughs) A classic routine. Thank you. I appreciate your pointing that out. Julia Louis-Dreyfus this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven today here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. 
Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. We've got a lot on the plate today, on our plate today, in terms of immigration. Um, another policy that the Trump administration put in place a couple weeks ago, Jim Galloway, was w- what we uh, call a public charge rule. Uh, essentially, they are now saying that uh, that they <laughs> they're basically saying if you're coming into this country and expect to be on uh, public assistance, whether it's Medicaid, food stamps, whatever, uh, that's going to work against you when you apply for a green card, we probably are going to reject you. Right, right. You almost you, you have to be an English-speaking member of the middle class immediately. Yeah, uh, insurance, yeah, I think, is another thing, proof of insurance. Yeah, health insurance. Yeah. Well, that's a factor. Insurance. It's a factor in determining a, whether or not you're going to go on welfare. In and of itself, it's not a requirement. It's just... Is the Medicaid piece of this that really kills me because you could work almost full time at Walmart, you know, be a working person and not have health insurance and have to get Medicaid, which we all know Walmart relies on public assistance quite a bit. You know, this law is actually this regulation, which will go into effect. I mean, it'll be challenged, but it will go into effect. It's really interesting because it's based upon, again, every regulation is based on a law. This is based on a law that's been around since about 1882. Oh, sure. It's not new that we that we're doing this. What's new about it is how it's being weaponized and how it's being defined in, as well. And in, in the, the definition in the modern era, and when you look at you know what is a public charge, and they say, well, it, the the rule is if you're if it's possible that you could ever go on public assistance. Now, first of all, you can't go on public assistance even as a permanent resident until you've been here for five years. And by then you can apply for citizenship, and of course, then you can do whatever you want. But think about it. That means if I'm, let's say I'm 50 and I finally got my green card in America, become a citizen, I want to sponsor my dad to come. My dad's 80. Mm-hmm. He's not coming. He would not meet the public charge criteria. He's going to go on old people insurance when he gets here. I mean, it's, so basically you're shutting off parents. Uh, you're shutting off people with a lack of education. Uh, even if they have an employer sponsored them, even if they're... And every person right now or employer who sponsors a foreign national to come legally signs something called an affidavit of support. And this is what's really strange. And most Americans have no idea this exists. So I'm saying by signing this form, I am creating a contract between me, the foreign national, and the United States government that says if this person ever uses improperly public benefits, you can come after me for those. And that's been the law since 1996. Do you know how many times the federal government has gone after an individual under that rule? Zero. In 23 years, zero times that has been enforced. So, Sally, you're not a, so you're saying, I mean, this has been uh, reported as a, as a new approach, the public charge rule by the Trump administration. You're saying they're merely activating something that's been in law for years. Yeah, Sally. I've known about that for years too, because I used to act, I used to operate an access to healthcare hotline, and I I learned about that mm-hmm. during that time. There's one exception, um, and that's pregnant women Correct. because they can Emergency get on Medicaid yeah. uh, f- through presumptive eligibility because there's not enough time to determine during the pregnancy if they're actually eligible. So and that's still an exception yes. under the new regulation. Yes. Rusty, I, I, I realize this question comes out of nowhere for you, and so I, in advance I'll say there's not any reason you necessarily would have this at your fingertips. Do you know anything about the green card population in Sandy Springs? No, I don't. I really yeah. don't. I mean, we do have a very diverse population. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, about 10% of our population is, is Hispanic, uh, obviously immigrants of, uh, at some point recently. Uh, but I wouldn't have a clue what the green card population How many be. consulates does Sandy Springs have? We've though? got uh, five uh, consulates, uh, the Indian consulate. Right. And, uh, wow. And uh, I, I was in Columbia. India right after the president was elected. And, and, you know, they send a lot of kids over here they do. To, for education. It's a big deal for them. And uh, they have started, and, and this is where the failure to deal with the legal side bothers me more than anything else, because we're, there's a talent drain going on. We used to bring in the best and brightest mm-hmm. from around the world, and we focused on that. And these Indian kids who would come to Georgia Tech, MIT, uh, all, all the great universities around Georgia, uh, they're not coming right now because no. they're not sure how they're going to be received and how they're going to be treated. Yeah. And there's a, there's a brain drain that, that's going to occur because we're not accessing that rich talent pool that exists around the world that we've always embraced. Uh, and that's, that, to me, is the flip side of not dealing with the 
problems of immigration. You're losing very talented and skilled people who change the world in a positive way, and it could be happening here. And now they're going to Canada and uh, other places well, rather staying than here. Home or becoming staying home our geopolitical competitors. Yeah. And Jim, as you pointed out, well, go ahead. You, you may have a question. All right. Well, David Perdue, as you pointed out, and Tom Cotton are uh, working to uh, reduce uh, legal immigration to the country. I know they say they want only the cream of the crop, but, you know... Yeah, the- yeah, but, you know, I mean, uh, look, we're uh, sitting around this table, we're, we're kind of all of about the same age, I'm thinking. Sally may be a little bit I younger, might be than, a little younger. younger than... How old do you think I am? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we grew up, we grew up with this story of, of immigrants arriving at the shore with only a few dollars in their mm-hmm. pockets... And yeah, maybe the the first generation didn't do so hot, but it was the second generation that we were told they're the ones who who who, who have made America what it is, and we are walking away from that. Uh, I mean, I, I you know, look, uh, my granddad came over here in twenty three. My father came over in twenty eight. He didn't know his granddad until he was that's, five years that's old. Quite a story, you know. Mm-hmm. He uh, granddad brought his mother in law, his wife. Seven sons, uh, and m- many of those wouldn't be allowed to come over. Yeah, Gall- Galloway. Oh, you'd never bring, bring a family that big anymore under yeah. these mm-hmm. new rules. So, well, right. some people would argue that Galloway shouldn't be allowed to come anyway. But that's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a whole other discussion. Wait, but you know what? Let's, I, would, I love the story. idea. Let's personalize this for a second. Yeah. Rusty, you've yeah. already told us yeah. that your ancestry is north yeah. from Northern Ireland. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. but generations back, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. You, you tell us about yours. Your your grandfather doesn't even meet your father until he it's gets five here. Years five. Years. Okay, yeah. uh, Sally. My paternal grandfather came here from Germany in the 1830s. My uh, maternal grandfather came here from England in 1910. There's some Norway. Oh, you'd be loved by the yeah, yes. president. <laughs> you. You're welcome. Seven, seven of my eight uh, great grandparents uh, immigrated from uh, from Germany sometime between 1882 and 1920. My dad's grandparents, my dad's parents, came here in 1929, 1930. Met in Brooklyn, married in Brooklyn. My dad grew up in Brooklyn during World That's War II. That's why you're so immigrant. feisty. I got you're a little a bit Brooklyn. of New York in me, right? Uh, I, I am, I'm, a, I'm pure blood immigrant. I mean, that's that's what we all are. And that's the, the tragic part of this. We, you know, we love immigrants from the past. We always have, and yeah. we've always been afraid of immigrants from but, the present. But you know, it's, you know and, and, and the other thing that kind of kind of rubs me the wrong way here is okay. We've got we've got we've got some complaints about uh, too many immigrants from s whole countries coming. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Well, look. In the 19th century, Ireland was one of those countries. <laughs> so it was Germany. Germany was yeah. one of those yeah. countries. Yeah. yeah. Italy. Uh, Italy, Italy was, was one especially countries. one yeah. of those countries. Well, uh, at, when when, and when the Mayflower got here. England was one of those countries. (laughs) (laughs) The Indians were standing up on the hillside saying, there goes the neighborhood. (laughs) That's right. Well, and really, I mean, we need immigrants in the gene pool because they're really the innovators, because Mm -hmm. they're the people who, who left. And and tried something different. And, self selection. They're, yeah. they're risk takers. They're risk takers. We need that to be an innovative. That's country. what made America great. Is those people took risk and they brought that risk taking with them. So that's why we've got to fix the problem. Yeah. My uh, paternal grandfather was put on a boat by his uh, parents uh, uh, from Budapest. Came to the United States. Went to Pittsburgh, where he worked in the coal mines. He met. My grandmother, who came with her family a few years after he did in Pennsylvania in the coal field, I, I mean, work, when he was working in the coal fields, he ended up as a motorcycle cop in Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> and uh, lived in uh, the, what was called the Hungarian ghetto mm-hmm. back in those days. And everyone around them were uh, immigrants from Hungary at the time. But, but here's what's interesting, too, about this, I think. Those are kind of romantic stories when we think back on them now, they weren't at the time. You know, we've already said, I mean, when when our families came here, they were escaping desperate conditions. Mm-hmm. Jim, the stories today we don't think of. I mean, you talk, Sally, about the, you know, the, the great innovators who come in. That's not the way we view the people no, who are no, trying because, because to get we're across not, the border Because we don't today. know those stories, and those stories will be told by the, by the, the, by the second and there. third generation. There you Absolutely. go. That's, right. That's the point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we got to get to another break. Um, no, before we do, let's talk about one other aspect of this that I was uh, struck by. And I'm, I think 
there are some nuances to this, uh, so I want to be careful. But I, I do know that the, the, um, that the Customs and Border Protection folks the other day said, by the way, we're not going to uh, vaccinate children. We're not going to do uh, flu vaccines for the children. In, in their giant internment camps. They cl- well, they claim because they're going to be there in, for such a short period of time, which is contradicted, of course, by uh, the uh, uh, new rule that replaces uh, uh, the, the uh, Flores mm-hmm. agreement. Uh, so they're not going to vaccinate them against the flu. Keep in mind that uh, three of the seven children that have died in CBP custody in the last year died of the flu. Uh, flu vaccines, among other vaccines, save lives. Um, and uh, to simply disregard that is insane. It's inhuman. I mean, it's a violation of the human rights. It's just really bad. All right. Um we got to take a break. Tom and Jesse, will you stick with me for just a second here? L- let's do, before we, we got one more topic we're going to talk about today, but but this is actually a good time for me to tell a quick story that I've uh, been wanting to talk about for a long time. It was uh, about a week or so ago that Ken Cuccinelli, the uh, acting boss, really, of ICE, um, was C- asked. Was, He's not the boss of was ICE. At, of, of, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks uh, he's the head of ICE. He was asked. Not. He was asked uh, by uh, during an NPR interview about whether he agreed with the Emma Lazarus poem. Let's hear what he said. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, "Give me your tired, your poor," are also part of the American ethos? Uh, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. Just in case you forget the Emma Lazarus poem, which, by the way, she wrote in 1883, it was called The New Colossus, and it really was a tribute to the Statue of Liberty. The section of the poem that, that we know today and that's inscribed on the plaque on the statue, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. One of the people who was really struck by that poem was Irving Berlin, who is considered by most people to be one of the greatest American songwriters of all time. He himself came here from uh, Russia, where he escaped the pogroms, the Russian purges of Jews. He came to New York with his family. And in 1949, the experience of being an immigrant here was so powerful to Irving Berlin that he wrote a musical called Miss Liberty about that. And Jesse, as we go to our break, if we can just play out a little bit, this is the song that he wrote based on the poem and we get to hear him singing it himself. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest to me. I'm Taylor Gann, GPB's Morning Edition producer. I've had the chance to cover the full spectrum of sports in Georgia, including women's basketball, the NCAA National Championship, and Atlanta United, who won the city's first pro championship since 1995. All different people all come together in these games, and it really just represents all of Atlanta. And I think it means a lot to the entire city to have something like this. We bring you the latest on sports right here on GPB. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, one of the biggest tools to control climate change lies right under our feet, the soil. We'll talk about how agriculture and farming around the world promote the release of greenhouse gases. Plus, fireflies light up the summer sky, but they might be blinking out and on the decline. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Today at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. 
Hey, Rusty Paul, I want to give you one more shout out. Uh, you have dealt with an issue in your community that many cities are trying to deal with, and that's the what happens with all of our houses that have alarm systems. The alarm goes off accidentally. The fire department shows up. It costs money. You've solved that problem, or you've at least made strides. We've, we've, we've made a huge dent in it. I, I wrote down some statistics, uh, and, I, you know, I have to write these things down. Uh, from 2006 to 2012, we averaged 12,000 what we call intrusion alarms or burglar alarm calls, 99% of which were false. Yeah. It was took 10,400 police hours chasing down false alarms. In 2013, we adopted the industry model of the alarm company, and we were able to drop that down to a full 10,000 a year, (laughs) still 99% of which were were, uh, false alarms. In 2017, we adopted an ordinance requiring the alarm companies obey the state law. Which is? That you have to make two verification calls mm-hmm. before you call 911. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we, and so that dropped it down to 8,000 false alarm <laughs> calls. Still 99% false. So in 2018, uh, we started diverting intrusion alarms to our call center away from 911 because it takes the 911 dispatcher about three to five minutes to deal with a false alarm. So it's consuming not only just 10,000 hours of police time, but the 911 operators, too, are diverted from dealing with real. So what we did was we've gone to requiring audio and visual verification that there is actually a wow. crime. In, with, with the new technologies, Ring, Nest, and all mm-hmm. the other alarm companies have it. Um, and uh, so uh, even Allstate's got a commercial out now where the car thief breaks in mm-hmm. and the guy sees it happening yeah. on his, you know, his uh, doorbell. Uh, so since we've done that... We've now dropped the uh, number of calls down to 32 per week. Wow. Which is 1,662 on average. 99% of them are still false. But what, let me show the difference was people were concerned that burglaries were going to go up. Burglaries have not changed. But what we've done now is because we've got visual confirmation, we're catching these guys. My police chief told me in 40 years of policing, he never caught anybody in the act because of an intrusion alarm. We actually caught because we had the visual confirmation. Verification. We caught three guys robbing a construction site the other day. You know, here, Jim, here's, here's one of the reasons I wanted to have Rusty tell us a little about it. We spend so much time in the show talking about what's wrong with government, <laughs> about all the paralysis in Washington. This is like where government really can work this is, this for is, the benefit of the people. But you got to take some risks. <laughs> I mean, people were upset. They thought that the, that everybody was moving to Sandy Springs and going to haul it off in a panel truck. Yeah. It, it has. <laughs> and, and, and you know, you know, it's, you, you know, and I think one of the secrets is, is that when you, uh, Rusty is is a is a nonpartisan. Yeah. Mayor. yeah. May- mayoral yeah. deeds are nonpartisan. Yeah. I, and I think, I think that goes a long way to to kind of defusing. Uh, uh, the, the the gridlock that might you might otherwise happen. Well, and, and that's why, if you recall, and when the uh, when Fulton County did the T-splost about three years ago, we, the mayors did it. That we were all nonpartisan, race, geography, partisanship was put aside, and we focused on solving the problem. When you just focus on solving the problems and get away with all this extraneous stuff, real things can happen. Yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of real things that might happen, we're going to only begin our conversation about this, Galloway, but clearly it's going to be an issue or, or a great subject for us in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, the state, uh, Governor Kemp tells us, is dealing with a need to cut its budget dramatically. And uh, so he's ordered all agencies to cut immediately 4 percent, 6 percent for the fiscal year beginning in 2020, uh, July of 2020. And that has opened the door for a, a rekindling or, or an accelerated interest in gambling in Georgia. Yeah, you've got these two study committees, one in the House, one in the Senate, uh, and in the leadership of both both panels, you've got you've got some uh, on the Senate side. You've got Brandon Beach, who, who is wants a, horse racing. Horse racing. Yep. Then on the House side, you've got Ron Stevens, who who wants casinos. But each one of those told me this week that that that's not going to be their priority. Their priority is going to be sports betting. Yeah, and because we're only going to get a couple minutes, people should your column about this very subject, sports betting, is posted right now on the AJC right. website, and it's in the paper on. Sunday. Sally, y'all have been toying with uh, legalizing uh, paramutual wagering. 
since I got here in 1983. Not you. You were you were <laughs> tiny. <small> <laughs> but but and 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 of course, uh, uh, casino gambling has been of interest more recently. Now sports wagering. What's your guess about what's going to happen with this? Well, Georgia's always been a very conservative state in terms of gambling, but I think the the population is beginning to change its mind. We asked this very question at my freshman legislators training in Athens, and we literally were supposed to like move to one side of the wall if we were for and move to another side of the wall if we were against and stand in the middle maybe and it was so mixed usually that was a partisan split but this time it was it was totally mixed up you're not going to be able to predict who's on side who's on what side of this issue okay, now, bill here's 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 the here's the big difference and i'll try to make this quick uh in the past what's happened the the the, the failure of of gambling initiatives has been kind of the lack of any 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 big voice on the grassroots side okay Second hearing on this in, in, in next month of the Senate committee is going to be conducted at uh, at SunTrust Park. Isn't that fascinating? Going to be at the, the baseball and, field. And the witnesses <laughs> will be the CEOs yeah. and presidents of the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah. They want this. Rusty, well, you know the world is a changing. What do you uh, think? A casino in the middle of Sandy Springs? No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it, it was interesting. I actually had, I, I was in a restaurant in Sandy Springs, and there was a, a lobbyist that we would all know if I mentioned his name, who works does work for the casino industry. And he told me, I said, what, you looking at Atlanta and Savannah? He said, no, actually, the best places are maybe one in metropolitan Atlanta somewhere, and then someplace like Dalton or uh, Blue Ridge or someplace outside uh, so they're actually looking in places that you may not be thinking of. Do you think the appetite is there? I think the change is happening. I mean, you know, the thing is, is you, you remember when alcohol, you know, of any alcohol bill, well, we talked about that earlier, how they just sell yeah. through now. And I think the same thing's happening on a wide range of issues. Faith and Freedom Coalition has yeah. already said, we're not going to let this happen on our watch. I'm not sure they have the pull that they once had to stop it. That's interesting. Yes, Sally? Well, you have some Democrats who think view it as a regressive tax and have some concerns about mental mm-hmm. health issues, too. Chuck? I don't need a tax cut in Georgia. Which, I see, of course, I, is I, the I other thing understand happening why we're here. Taxes in Georgia. I mean, I just don't get it. Eliminating would be great, but I don't understand why, why we're wasting our time on something like this. So, uh, Jim, the first, the, Brandon Beach has a hearing next, one day next week. Right, Tuesday. Tuesday, um, followed by the Sun Trust um, uh, uh, field or whatever you right. stadium mm-hmm. a month later. And what about, it's, you, you mentioned Ron Stevens, and he's interesting on the House side, this committee that the Speaker has put together, because he's been a proponent of casino gambling yeah, for a he, long he, time. Yeah, it's a yeah. signal yeah. from the Speaker, we're headed yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Stevens told me that that more than likely the House side will probably get, get going uh, sometime early October. Okay. Well, one of the interesting issues, if Major League Baseball's moving that direction, are they going to let Pete Rose back in? But look, just yesterday, uh, the Major League Baseball signed a deal with FanDuel, uh-huh. one of these sports fans, fantasy yeah. places that gives them access to all their data, all the, all the batting averages, all that stuff. That's what it, the, that's where this is going. Man, I free like... Pete Rose. <laughs> <laughs> that's Rusty Paul, the mayor of Sandy Springs. Charles Cook is with us today. Senator Sally Harrell, Jim Galloway, of course, is with us. You're not going to be with us Monday. You've got to go well, off and do something different. I'm going to be in Savannah. Going to miss you. Uh, but we'll muddle through when we see you all again for another Political Rewind Monday at 2. Have a great weekend, everybody.